What are frozen conflicts? Did you know that over 3 million people living in Eurasia today are affected by frozen conflicts? Their lives have been frozen in these conditions of political uncertainty and insecurity. Because while these armed conflicts have been suspended, no peace treaties have been agreed upon to permanently end them. Their impact and more today on Trade for Peace. Welcome to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. I am Axel Addy, former chief negotiator of Liberia's accession to the WTO and founding member of the Trade for Peace program. Trade for Peace is a 30-minute podcast in conversation with Trade for Peace champions, the global policymakers, entrepreneurs, and innovators committed to promoting trade as a key ingredient for lasting peace. Join us in our bi-monthly podcast as we discuss how trade is contributing to sustainable peace in fragile and conflict-affected countries. Welcome to Trade for Peace. From all of us here at the Trade for Peace team, we would like to say thank you to all of you who have listened to our episodes over the last season, last year. And we would like to extend another invitation to all of you to make suggestions on topics and guests you would like to see feature in this season's podcast. In today's episode, Defrosting Frozen Conflicts, the Role of Trade, we are honored to have with us Ambassador Thomas Greminger. Thomas is the Director of the Geneva Center for Security Policy, the GCSP. He is also the former Secretary General of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE. Thomas, thank you for joining us today and Happy New Year to you. Thank you so much. Uh, great to be uh, with you, uh, Axel, and thanks for, for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. So how did you spend your holidays? Well, I spent uh, Christmas uh, and New Year with my family, my daughters, my father, uh, partly in Bern, partly in Geneva. And in between the years, I did a bit of skiing uh, in Andermatt. And uh, yeah, that's that's basically it. And, and then, uh, you know, work picked up uh, already in the first week of, of January when I had the privilege of being invited to Malta by uh, the Maltese Minister of Foreign Affairs. And the good thing uh, about starting the year like that was, you know, to combine work uh, consultations on uh, European security, Mediterranean security, with a bit of sightseeing on this beautiful island. Fantastic. And if your daughters were to rate your skiing, how would they rate your skiing? Uh, I'm a pretty good skier. Thomas, today we want to talk about defrosting, defrosting frozen conflicts. Uh, These are protracted conflicts. And I know you spent a huge part of your career focused on the Ukrainian crisis. First of all, I would like us to talk a little bit about your background and what led you to this career path? Uh, what was your turning point uh, that led you to, to focus on, on, on this career path? I would say uh, this started quite early when I was uh, uh, an ex- exchange student uh, as a 17-year-old to a U.S. high school. I think I started to develop this interest for uh, issues related uh, to international relations, to peace, security, 
uh, and then gradually also conflict resolution. And then uh, in my university studies, I, I then eventually also uh, specialized towards the end on military history. I did a PhD in, in uh, military history. And in parallel, I served as a, a reserve officer in the Swiss Armed Forces. Uh, at the end, uh, I was a, a lieutenant colonel, general staff. Uh, so there is also here, you, you have a link to security. Uh, but then professionally, I think seriously, it began in 2002 uh, when I became the deputy director of the Human Security Department of the Swiss Ministry of Foreign Affairs. This department deals basically with the Swiss contribution to peace processes uh, around the globe, be it mediation, facilitation, uh, making uh, expertise available in terms of power sharing, dealing with the past, etc. And then in 2010, I ventured into European security uh, by uh, being appointed permanent representative of Switzerland uh, to international organizations, to the UN and the OEC in Vienna. And then uh, by chance, uh, Switzerland then, uh, you know, was uh, appointed chair of the OEC in 2014. That happened to be the year of uh, the crisis uh, in and around Ukraine. And I happened to chair the permanent council of the OEC. So I was closely involved in all of the crisis management, trying to identify measures to de-escalate the conflict. I negotiated the mandate of the special monitoring mission to Ukraine of the OEC, which is today's flagship operation of the OEC. Thank you. And 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 I know uh, being involved in these uh, protracted conflict as a negotiator, it, it, it is an endeavor of the management of the expectations from all factions. Uh, I sort of uh, worked, one of my first jobs was working with the uh, commission dealing with the disarmament process in Liberia. And I know the government really struggled to get warring factions around the table. You have so many different peace accords that, were, that never came to fruition until the Accra Peace Accord, because it's such a high expectation of, of diverging uh, views. And many of it is economically driven. Uh, in Liberia, warring factions uh, control the resource-rich areas, and they weren't willing to mm -hmm. uh, let go of those assets so easily. Uh, but they were able to come up to an agreement uh, with the Accra Peace Accord. So it is uh, an exercise in managing expectations. What do you see, given the economic elements that tend to uh, fuel these protracted conflict, what do you see as a possible role uh, for the WTO system uh, to contribute to ongoing peace efforts in places like Ukraine? I think there are a number of things, you know, and, and uh, perhaps uh, it's very important to also note that trade can play uh, an important role in, in conflict prevention by uh, uh, contributing to a broad-based growth uh, by making sure you know that there is revenue uh, for people uh, and, and this uh, clearly can have a stabilizing effect on a society that also would partly help to offset grievances you know underscore partly offset uh, grievances and and i think i would also argue trade can have an important uh, role in in post conflict rehabilitation in post conflict stabilization again 
in particular, if trade, you know, is creating broad-based growth effects and and benefits for broader segments of population, and not not only for elite. But now uh, coming to protracted conflicts, ongoing conflicts uh, here, again, I think there is, uh, as you uh, allude to, a huge potential for using trade as confidence-building measure to create an environment that would uh, then be more enabling for conflict resolution. I think that is particularly interesting in situations where sites are not yet ready to advance uh, on status-related issues, uh, to you know move towards settling the conflict, there you have spaces to do things you know that make a difference for the populations on the ground. And uh, by implementing these kinds of measures, you can, as the term indicates, build confidence, build uh, trust. That then again would normally also make it easier to move to advance uh, on the the more principled the settlement uh, related issues and and you know, to illustrate that you know just let's imagine together there is progress uh, in the months to come in implementing the minsk agreements mm-hmm. in in the donbas and and i think just think uh, of lifting for instance the trade blockade launching measures you know that would uh, again uh, allow uh, trade relations, uh, uh, economic cooperation over the line of contact, this would have a tremendous uh, effect. Also, in, in trying to you know rebuild this sense of belonging together, uh, belonging to the same uh, Ukraine. And I think you could argue similarly for other protracted conflicts, Georgia, Transnistria. For instance, in the Transnistrian settlement process, we have seen you know, concrete measures that have a trade impact, for instance, by agreeing to a reopen a bridge that had been closed uh, for decades. And that reopened bridge then again uh, allowed uh, trading uh, over the line of contact, uh, brought communities on both sides uh, uh, together. And, and then last not least, let's look at what is happening in the South Caucasus, uh, around Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, where you know we have uh, basically a, a, an agreement in the ceasefire accord to open up transport corridors, uh, uh, to open up borders, and I think this could have a tremendous impact, not only economically, uh, you know, for instance, uh, uh, bring a country like Armenia out of uh, its isolation. But I think it would also contribute to providing the ground then to, uh, at some point, also discuss more constructively the settlement-related issues. These are excellent examples. I remember uh, your conversation quite well with uh, Ambassador Tudu Ulyanovsky about this confidence-building mechanism. Now, with this rise of nationalism uh, across the region, is this actually going to work to, again, reduce these uh, protracted uh, conflict? It's a fact. Eh? We have these nationalist trends. We have these populist uh, trends. Uh, they're part of the picture when we talk about uh, this crisis of multilateralism. These are also political trends you know, that we would love uh, to control, but, but we can't, or only to, a, to an extent. But then, you know, I would also be uh, confident that 
we at international organizations, uh, we can offer narratives, we can offer arguments for leaders that are ready to overcome these nationalist, uh, populist uh, uh, trends that are ready to go uh, for more constructive uh, policies, you know, that are ready to acknowledge that basically all major challenges of the 21st century can only be successfully addressed by international cooperation, by uh, working together, by cooperative uh, approaches. This is valid, I I guess, for issues around trade. It's also, of course, very much true for my domain, the security domain. I think all major risks can only be uh, successfully addressed by international cooperation. And I think we need uh, arguments. Uh, We need to make a business case for this mindset, for this approach. But at the end of the day, you also need leaders, you know, that uh, take it up, uh, take uh, use these narratives. And perhaps last but not least, but I insist on this point, I think we also have to make sure on our side that our organizations uh, remain fit for purpose, you know, reform them to the needs of the 21st century, uh, make sure that they can deliver uh, what member states uh, expect. And I think that, you know, even in challenging circumstances, there is always a latitude to reform, to make sure that we remain or that we become fit for purpose as an international organization. Absolutely. And and there are views that the WTO must operate within its core mandate and that these issues of discussions around health and peace sort of a broader interpretation of the role of the World Trade Organization. In your view, how do you see a transformed WTO that is fit for purpose in terms of today's reality? How do you see the convergence of the trade and peace community in trying to tackle some of these wicked uh, challenges, uh, as you just mentioned? I think we really need to acknowledge uh, that all these uh, major challenges that we currently face, they're interrelated. And I think uh, if we want to come up with agendas, uh, with responses that work, that impact, uh, that convince, you know, the nationalists that perhaps international cooperation is better than uh, trying to model through uh, nationally, uh, I think then we we, uh, need to... uh, uh, think and act holistically and, and bring these aspects together. And, and I think that trade and peace agenda is uh, is a case in point, is a strong argument for, for doing exactly that. And I think we need international organizations that are capable uh, of looking ahead, that have a, a strategic foresight capacity, you know, that can anticipate. And then, yeah, at the end of the day, of course, it's member states, you know, that define what uh, may be done and and what not, that, of course, approve the budgets. And at the very end of the day, it's the budgets, you know, that uh, uh, allow us or or wouldn't allow us to do something. Uh, But I think uh, it's important, you know, that international organizations 
and I think there is evidence that international organizations that have this uh, strategic foresight capacity that can look ahead and suggest uh, responses, answers to member states that they're more resilient than, uh, you know, organizations that wouldn't uh, have that. And, and you know, I'm not, I, I admit, a WTO expert, but I had exactly the same challenge as Secretary General of the OEC, uh, you know, when uh, I realized that we were basically absorbed, you know, by the daily needs of uh, um, <laughs> responding uh, to the daily challenges of running the organization, but had no uh, capacity to to, to uh, think ahead, to to reflect, you know, what's going to be in two or three years, uh, you know, what are the security challenges that we will have to deal with in the next five to ten years. Then obviously you cannot uh, suggest to member states uh, what would need to be done, what capacities uh, would need to be expanded, uh, and I think that's an important capacity of an international organization. And, and and look at the end of the day, it's not that costly if you see, uh, you know, if you compare it with the benefits that uh, you can produce for for member states. Wow. Thomas, thank you for this uh, rich and in-depth insight in terms of defrosting protracted uh, conflict. Now, I would like us to switch it up. Uh, and we have a new segment called Rapid Fire. This is by popular demand. And so we want to get to know you a little better. And so I'm going to ask you five questions which you have uh, 10 seconds to respond. Here we go. Are you a tea or coffee guy? Any coffee. To wake up in the morning and to remain awake, uh, awake during the day. Fantastic. Uh, what was the last book you read? Uh, right now, it's my second uh, attempt on Tolstoy's uh, War and Peace. Ah, I have it here in my background. I still haven't gotten to it yet. <laughs> well, it's my second attempt. <laughs> I hope this time was successful. But it's exciting stuff. Yes. And Vienna, Geneva, your favorite city? Clearly Vienna. It might be different in a couple of years' time, but now clearly Vienna. <laughs> And one of your resolutions for 2022? Well, use Geneva better as an excellent location to go skiing over the weekend. And one thing you would like to see happen in 2022? I definitely would want to get a couple of dialogue processes off the ground within the next couple of months, despite of COVID, that would try to give a significant and meaningful response to the current security challenges, for instance, in supporting the strategic stability dialogue, but also, for instance, in supporting the, uh, the process that would lead us, you know, to a decent celebration of the 50th uh, anniversary of the Helsinki Final Accord in 2025. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, I, too, in 2022, I would like to see more entrepreneurs, uh, more uh, operators, uh, policymakers that are working on the front line. So Thomas, if you have any great suggestions of people that are working on these issues that are on the front line doing some amazing things, uh, we want to encourage you to make those recommendations or if there are topics, uh, we'd like to encourage you to make those suggestions. My 2022 resolution, uh, I played tennis for over 30 years and uh, I had a bad fall and so I switched to golf. I am a horrible golfer. Okay. Uh, quite it's quite a humbling sport, but I hope to improve my scoring this this year. Well, Thomas, look, it has been quite an enriching discussion. I always like to end our podcast with one last question. Uh, we now uh, have listeners from 
all over the world. Over 100 countries are tuning into this podcast. So I would like you to conclude, what does Trade for Peace mean to you and why? Well, we discuss about the trade as an enormous potential for confidence building in peace processes. Now, my call will be, we need more political will, more political commitment to impose these trade agendas over the status concerns that you uh, have in uh, in these peace processes because you know the the, the potential benefits are uh, uh, so important fantastic so political will it's what you're pushing political will for a trade agenda fantastic that was ambassador thomas greminger director of the geneva center for security policy Thomas, thank you for joining us today on Trade for Peace. You're most welcome. Thank you for your attention and your patience. And to our listeners, may you have a wonderful year ahead. And thank you for tuning in to today's episode, Defrosting Frozen Conflict, The Role of Trade. Now, don't forget to follow us on our social media channels. We are present on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn as Trade for Peace. I am your host, Axel Addy. You have been listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. You can be a part of the conversation by sharing your stories and your suggestions with us at tradeforpeace at wto.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Trade for Peace. Be sure to tune in every other week for new episodes. Thank you for listening to Trade for Peace.